Good morning. Kimmy and uh, Nate, did you guys know Joey? No. So this, did you? So this is so cool. So we've been in this theme, obviously, of hospitality and what it means for us to be a welcoming church. And uh, this is really cool. So Joey uh, was part of our church like year two. Part of our church for like a couple years and then he moved away. And he was sitting by himself. He just visits, you know, he's out in the West Coast. He visits once in a while. And Joey and I are pretty tight. And I saw him sitting by himself. And then next thing I know, after uh, Jamie encouraged everybody to kind of come sit close, I saw you guys sitting next to them. So did you guys say hi? Meet each other? Yeah. Okay. That's so cool. If you're new to our church, if you're new to our church, I just want you to know, if you're sitting by yourself, that's actually not good or not right or not, I, I, no, I don't mean what I'm trying to say. We don't want you to sit by yourself is what we're saying. And so don't be offended if some folks from our church kind of come sit next to you and say, hey, what's your name? We, uh, we're trying to do better in this area and we're saying that what we want to do is as a church, when we see someone we don't know, just to introduce ourselves. Like make it just kind of a rule of thumb. If you see someone in this building or outside that you don't know, just say, hi, I don't know you, what's your name? And secondly, we're trying to practice this thing where after worship, as soon as the last benediction is given, for the first three minutes, we don't just turn around and talk to people that we know or look and find people that we know, but actually intentionally Look for people that you might not know that are sitting next to you for the first three minutes. And then after the first three minutes, you can do whatever you want. The first three minutes that we get uh, into the habit of doing that. Okay? Church, amen? Amen? Yeah. We just want to be a, a welcoming, hospitable place, particularly to the strangers among us. Trevor Cox, as, uh, as Susie mentioned, is a good friend of Susie and our children's ministry pastor, Yuli. And uh, this is actually, a, I think, a big part of his speech, his dissertation on, on uh, welcoming strangers. And so I, I want you guys to, if you can, come back at 1 o'clock. And uh, I think it'll be a worthwhile time for us not just talk about leadership, but also lean into this aspect of learning from and for the stranger among us. I think it'll be huge. Good to see you all here this morning. We are launching a brand new sermon series, which means two things. One, <clears throat> I uh, will kind of paint a 30,000 for perspective. So there are questions that always come up saying, what about this, what about that, what about this, what about that, which we'll get to. Um, and secondly, uh, I try and do my best to kind of whet your appetite. <laughs> so you go, ooh, I really want to come back for this series. Sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. So don't let today be kind of the litmus test on whether you think this sermon series on Daniel, Book of Daniel, which is one of my favorite books will be worthwhile. Uh, hopefully you could invite your friends and be a part of that. Let me read you a letter. I love getting emails from folks. You know that? I love getting emails from, from folks from a church. And this is an email that I got. Dear Pastor Peter, I've been attending New Community now for close to eight years. During this time, I have experienced radical personal transformation, conviction, and true change in my life's direction. At least this is what I tell myself when I look back over my walk towards Christ. You see, while I may feel transformed and convicted, I have to be rigorously honest with myself and how I'm really doing as a kingdom person. It's easy for me to say to myself that I've been changed by God's grace. But aside from the two hours I spend at my church home on Sundays, is there really evidence of God's work in my life? 
where I am six out of seven days of the week? You see, I'm a surgery resident. I'm good at what I do. I'm technically gifted in the operating room. I'm empathetic and caring with my patients. I spend 80 to 90 to 100 hours a week. That's a problem, by the way. 100 hours a week inside a hospital with doctors, nurses, and patients. But if you ask any of these people to describe me, would any of them say first that I am a man after God's own heart? Would any of them even mention that I am a a follower of Jesus among the maybe top five things that they would say to describe me? In short, is there really any plain evidence in my life of the incredible goodness and grace that Jesus Christ has shown me? I'd have to say that the answer is disappointing, no. Frankly, this guy, I think, is being hard on himself because I think he is an amazing witness as a follower of Jesus. And I think he's a little hard on himself. You might guess he's Asian, by the way. He's a little bit perfectionistic. Can you relate? Somehow, despite believing in the radical, life-giving, transformational truth that is the gospel, there's a disconnect between how I feel my walk as a kingdom person is going and how my walk as a kingdom person actually looks to the world. If evidence of my life change is nowhere to be seen, is my life really changed? If my life makes sense to and can be rationalized by my non-believing friends who come from a completely secular perspective, will they ever be able to taste God's goodness through his work in my life? He's incredible at what he does. He's professional. His peers respect him. And yet he's wrestling with this this, this question, which I think is an incredible question. He says, does my life make sense to the world? What he is saying is this. There's a sense in which, and you've heard me say this before. If Christ is living in us, the Holy Spirit is living in us, the supernatural, miraculous work of God is being done in our lives, there's a sense in which our lives shouldn't make sense to the world. They should look at, the kind of love that we display and say, that doesn't make any sense. How is that possible? The integrity, the honesty, the patience, the kindness, the supernatural character that is the result. The world should be looking at us and go, it doesn't make any sense. How are you the way? And he's saying, does my, does my life make too much sense to the world? People look at me and go, yeah, sure. Here's a question. Are you and I remarkably different. Not just different. In our workplaces, homes, schools, streets, neighborhoods, remarkably, where people go, (sighs) how do you explain that? This is so deeply convicting for me. That's why we're diving into the book of Daniel, which is exilic literature. Do you know what that means? That means that it's written about the time when God's people were in exile. 
See, God enters into a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. And God says to them, in faithfulness and obedience will be blessing. But in disobedience and sin and rebellion, there will be, not, there'll be loss of national sovereignty and eventually exile. And if you read the Old Testament, you know the story. Disobedience, idolatry, sin. And in 722, in fulfillment of what God said, the nation of Assyria comes, attacks the northern kingdom of Israel, and takes them into exile. The southern kingdom at that time is spared because the king of southern kingdom says to uh, the, the, the king of Assyria, we'll pay you tribute if you'll leave us alone. And he does, but it won't last long. Because then the nation of Babylon is coming now as the dominant power in the world under the leadership of a guy named, does anybody know? Nebuchadnezzar. I love that name, by the way. Not in a good way, but it's, just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good tyrant name. You know what I mean? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar comes on the scene. And the king of Judah, southern kingdom, in 522 says, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll pay you tribute if you will leave us alone. And Nebuchadnezzar says, fine. But at that time, this is important, he takes a bunch of exiles with him back to Babylon. Among them is a guy named Daniel and his three friends, known by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The problem is, within a few years, the king of Judah, southern kingdom, stops paying tribute. So seven years later, Nebuchadnezzar attacks the southern kingdom of Judah and takes back thousands of exiles. So there's actually two exiles. Some people didn't know. Two, thousands into exile. He deposes the southern king, puts up his own puppet king. Here's the context. So the Jews are in exile in Babylon. And all of a sudden, they went from having a culture, society, its institutions, the government, the, the arts, the schools, the academia, all the institutions that were favorable to the Christian faith. In other words, everybody believed what you believed. Everybody's values and priorities and agendas were in line with what you believed. They went from that all of a sudden to taking into a city, a culture, an environment in which nobody believed what you believed. At best, they were indifferent to your belief system, and at worst, they were hostile to your faith. It's in that context that the letter of Daniel is written to the exiles. Now, here's the interesting part. If you know anything about history, you know that in recent decades, we've seen a transformation where in Europe and parts of America were very friendly or supportive of the Christian faith. And by the way, there's still parts of the United States that still like that. We call it the what? The, the Bible Belt, exactly. Where institutions and so on and so forth are more friendly and supportive of the Christian faith. That's not the case, though, for the majority of this country. The value of tolerance rules the day. The claim that Jesus Christ is the only way and the truth of life is not only met with skepticism, but with scorn. If you believe that Jesus is the only way and the truth of life, you're not just narrow minded, you're stupid. Try to live in this culture in value, in regards to money and sexuality and live biblically, what are you met with? Just next time you go out with drinks for, you know, with your friends, say in the midst of that, by the way, I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. You shouldn't have sex until marriage. See what the response would be. We are growing to be more secular and, as they say, post Christian. And so the question that Daniel poses to us is this question. How do we live remarkably winsome lives 
and a culture that's indifferent or hostile? How do we remarkably dis- with different lives while remaining distant Christian? Or the way that I frame this question over and over again to you is, how do we live in such a way that we're biblically orthodox and radically loving at the same time? Hmm? By the way, is this relevant to anybody? Here's where we're going today, though. We're not going to jump into actually Daniel 1. Where we're going today, actually, is a little before that. There's a, there's, a, there's a context. So during this time, a prophet named Jeremiah. Anybody hear of Jeremiah? Jeremiah is called by God to prophesy. Okay? Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Do you know why? Because nobody listened to him. Um, he wrote parts of Lamentations, if you know. Here's the interesting thing. Jeremiah actually prophesies in Jerusalem that what Nebuchadnezzar did was exactly going to happen. He prophesied that exactly what was going to happen. As a matter of fact, that the exiles were going to be in Babylon for 70 years. But nobody listened to Jeremiah. Who they were listening to were these false prophets that arose. Chief among them, a guy named Hananiah. And here's what they were saying. The false prophets rose and they were saying, Hey, 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 this exile is not God's will for you. This exile is just a temporary setback. God will crush Nebuchadnezzar and all of you will soon come back to Jerusalem. These false prophets arose at this time and they were essentially saying, this temporary setback that you're experiencing, this, 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 this exile that you're experiencing is not something that will go on much longer. And Jeremiah writes a letter as a part of what we're going to do. He writes this letter, and we're going to look at a part of that letter in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. Okay? Jeremiah, chapter 29. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah, chapter 29. Jeremiah, chapter 29. You need to know this context to be able to understand the book of Daniel. In Jeremiah, chapter 29. Essentially, before we dig in, starting verse 1, here's what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah essentially writes in the face of these Israelites that are listening to these false prophets saying, this is a temporary setback. Exile is not God's intention for you. God's going to bring you back. Jeremiah essentially writes this letter, and he says, your exile isn't ending anytime soon. He writes and says, stop waiting for, and this is important, Stop waiting for people of God what you think is supposed to happen and be found faithful with what is. Some of y'all missed it. Let me say it again. Jeremiah writes this incredible letter. He says, people of God, I know this is irrelevant to nobody here right now. People of God, stop waiting for what you think is supposed to happen and be found faithful with what is, where God has you now, because God actually is in that exile. These exiles just couldn't see their circumstances as anything more than a temporary setback. These exiles just couldn't see their exile. And so here's what's happening. Their life literally was in a holding pattern. And they just waited for God to get them out of Babylon. Some of you are in a state of exile. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite pastors and authors, says this about exile. The essential meaning of exile is that we are where we don't want to be. 
how many of you guys have ever been in a place <laughs> where you are where you don't want to be? Every single hand should go up. But then he goes on. We are separated from home. It's an experience of dislocation where everything is out of joint and nothing fits together. Exile is not something that happened thousands of years ago for an ethnic group. Exile comes in the form for some of us in the form of disability. Some of us in the form of a difficult marriage. Some of us in the form of a demanding employer. Some of us in the form of a tense work environment. Some of us, it comes in the form of being single. God, how long am I going to be single? Some of us, it comes in the form of boyfriend breaking off a relationship or a spouse leaving us. For some of us, it comes in the form of having to move to places where we don't want to move to, place unknown. For some of us, dreams failing to materialize. And we have a difficult time trusting God in the midst of exile. Can anybody relate? When we're in exile, this is what I do. God, are you in this? Where are you? Are you in control? Do you love me? Do you care? But here's what else I do. I give into this mindset when I'm in exile that if God would just change the way things are, then I can be happier. Then, oh, I've done this a thousand times. I can be more effective for your kingdom. Then I could be more generous. Then I could be more courageous. Then fill in the blank. We give in to this where we just either coast or we go, God, if you will just change the way things are, if you will just change the circumstances, then. Anybody there today? It's in that context that Jeremiah 29 is written. And listen to what he says. By the way, we're going to get to a portion. There's a verse in this text, some of you know, that's been so misused and misapplied, it drives me batty. You already know, don't you? And when I come to that, I'm going to yell and scream a lot. <laughs> Shoot, I shouldn't have given that away. Y'all be like, what's he talking about? What? Verse 1, this is, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, to the prophets, and all other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. To which we go, no, 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 no. Wait, wait, Jeremiah, hold, hold on a minute, Jeremiah. You mean all those people that Nebuchadnezzar Carried into exile. Nebuchadnezzar, the bad tyrant dude who's in control, who is. See, the exiles had convinced themselves that their circumstances were brought about by Nebuchadnezzar, and it was just a matter of time before God resuming, you know, control of things. To which Jeremiah says, Hello, God's been never out of control. God's been never out of control. God wasn't asleep at the wheel when this happened. God wasn't taking a nap or out to lunch break when this happened. God has never not been in control. He is still sovereign, still Lord, still at work. Is that good news? This exile, this momentary setback that you think is not some kind of a temporary setback back a temporary exemption from God's good purposes for you, but it is a vital part of God's good purposes for you. 
your exile, your current situation, the discomfort, the inconvenience is not some exemption from God's good purposes for you, child of God. It is a vital part of God's good purposes for you. Is this good news to anybody? Oh, man. Oh, man. Whenever we find ourselves asking, God, where are you in all this? You know what God says? God says, I'm right here. I haven't gone anywhere. I've never been out of control. I'm never rattled. I'm never taken off guard. See, that circumstance right there that took you off guard, I saw that coming. That situation, that relationship that totally threw you off, I saw that coming. I'm still in your current circumstances, even when it doesn't seem that way. I am still at work in your circumstances, even when it doesn't seem that way. That I carried into exile. Then comes a challenge that they never thought they'd hear from a prophet. Verse 5, so build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number. That doesn't just mean have a lot of kids. It means grow in strength, grow in power. Increase in number there and do not decrease. See, to which the exile probably looked at each other and said, what the heck is he talking about? Why will we build houses here when we're going to be taken off soon? Why would we raise a family in this godless city? They're under, here's what they wonder. God, how can you ask me to make a home in this place, in this situation, when it's clear that you don't want me to be here? I let, anybody ever say that? But how, how can you tell us to, how can you tell me to move on when things clearly aren't right? You notice what God doesn't say in verse 5 to 6? He doesn't say why. He doesn't give them the reason why. Do you know why that's important? Because many of us, when we're in an Israelite situation, our primary questions are why and when. Why is this happening to me? And when is this going to end? You know what God says? Ask a different question. Ask me, God, what? God, what are you up to? God, what? are you up to? When you're not where you want to be, when you're in a situation that seems and feels like dislocation, when we are so convinced this can't possibly be what God's, God says, ask me what, and here's what we find. And if this resonates with you, say amen to this. What I've found in all of my years of walking with Jesus is that God often does the deepest, most life-changing work in my life when I am where I don't want to be. God often does the deepest, most life-changing work when things aren't working out like I planned. And God does his deepest, most life-changing work when I am uncomfortable in a state of dislocation than any other time when I'm comfortable, things are exactly as they plan to be, and my life is humming along. Can anybody relate? You know what else is even more powerful? 
God not only does work in my life, but he also does more for the kingdom during those times than any other time. He often does more work for the advancement of his kingdom purposes. But here's the question. If you and I are consumed with why is this happening and when we miss out on what God might be up to. In this situation where I don't want to be here. This is not what I planned. Where are you? Would you take a moment this week to just utter that prayer? Because you've never uttered that prayer. You've prayed for hours. Why? And what? You've never got what? Do you want to do in me? What? Do you want to do through me? You know what else is amazing? <laughs> God's response is flourish where you are. My will is that you will increase. That is flourish. And here's the thing, your church, church, church. Even when where you are is a result of your sins and your mistakes. Does anybody else find that to be great news? Somebody clapped to that. God says, I want you to flourish. It's possible to flourish in exile, in that situation of discomfort, when where you are is a result of yours. Remember, this is written to exiles who deserve what they're getting. But even though it was their rebellion, even though it was their pride and arrogance that brought their exile, God says, I want to use this to grow you, to mature you, to refine you, and to make you more like me. The amazing thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there is no such thing as plan B for your life. God says, I'm still at work. Your sin reaches far. I'm telling you today, the good news of Jesus Christ is God's grace reaches further. You could run from God, but you'll never be able to outrun God's grace. And the good news comes to the nation of Israel saying, even when where you are is a situation of your sins, God can weave even our sins, our failures, our mistakes, and our rebellion for his redemptive purposes. You can't ever thwart God's purposes for your life. Verse 7, seek then the peace and prosperity of the city to which I, here's it again, I have carried you. Peace and prosperity, the one word, shalom. And if you've been a part of our series for the last month, you know that there's a big word, shalom. Doesn't just mean peace. It means wholeness, universal flourishing, every element of our world society functioning as God intended Spiritually, physically, socially, culture in every way. And the Bible says that's what we are to seek. That's what we are to work towards. The common good. We are called as followers of Jesus to be involved in redeeming every facet, every, every facet of our society. Address every part of our world that's broken. Any gospel, any gospel, and I'm going to talk more about this in this upcoming series. Any gospel that relegates the gospel to individual salvation and personal morality is a truncated gospel. Any gospel that narrows the gospel to my personal relationship with God and just take care of people spiritually narrows the gospel. Can I get an amen? 
And this series, we're going to really delve into what that means to be countercultural Christians that work for the common good. But then here's my question for you then. If this is the case, how is it that we live in a country where so many Christians are single-issue voters? How is it that we live in a country where we've narrowed down the gospel and what it means to be redemptive people to one or two things? Is anybody else wondering that? So here's my question, and again, I might get myself in the trouble I need to throw out there. If Christians care that much about abortion, and I do, should we also not care about the fact that one in six child in this country lives in extreme poverty? To those who care about the sanctity of life, and I do as fiercely as anybody, should we not also care about the unjust and unequal treatment of black and brown lives? Do you not see that this is what it means to work for the shalom? And while I'm at it, gay marriage? I am all for a biblical vision of marriage. But before Christians could rail about gay marriage, we need to make sure that we don't continue to contribute to the divorce rates and consumption of pornography in this country. Judgment begins with the household of God, church. Let's get our house in order. Amen? And a little preview for next week to everybody that clamors for, we need prayer in schools. No, we need prayer in churches. Our society is falling apart because we haven't put up the Ten Commandments in the courtroom. No, society is falling apart because Christians are not obeying the Ten Commandments. Okay, don't get me started. Can I get an Amen. Shalom, 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 wholeness, common good. Every facet of our society, that is what we're called to redeem. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you t again, you will prosper. God's saying to the Israelites, listen to me. Those of you who are in exile, and you're just in, I'm just in survival mode, I'm just in survival mode. God says, in that situation, you can flourish. Singles who think that you can't flourish as a single, I have news for you. God says, you can flourish as a single man or a woman. Okay, I'm going to get some pushback for that. For those of you that are in job situation, you're going, I can't flourish until you change my job. God goes, you can flourish. People who says, I'm not where I want to be until survival. God says, you can flourish where you are. I hope that's good news to some of you. God says, my intention and my will for you. Because here's what happens when we're in survival mode. When we feel like our life is sort of in limbo and on hold. You know what else happens? We put our faith on hold too. When our life is sort of on hold, some of you and me, we put our faith on hold too. We just kind of just coast. Just kind of coast. Survive. And God goes, do you not know what I intend for you? There's a word of challenge too, by the way. And the challenge is this. Your current situation is not just about you. The exiles weren't just in Babylon. For them, they were in Babylon. For who? For who? 
the Babylonians. You're not in your situation. Good Lord. Look, I'll just confess. When I in survival mode, when I am asking all the wrong questions, I get so consumed with my own needs, my own desires, and my own wants that I literally lack capacity nor awareness of other people. And God's saying to these people, will you just get your head up for a moment? Look at me, because my plans for you in that situation is not just for you to flourish, but for you to be a blessing unto others. Man, good Lord, you, you and I just go through our week, consume exile, dislocation. God, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in this situation. And God's going, do you see the countless people that are in your path that I want you to bless. Again, one last quote from Eugene Peterson. Jeremiah's letter is a rebuke and a challenge. He says, quit sitting around and feeling sorry for yourselves. You see why I love him? <laughs> Anybody feeling sorry for themselves today? Next the aim of the person of faith, listen to this, is not to be as comfortable as possible, but to live as deeply and thoroughly as possible to deal with the reality of life, discover truth, create beauty, and act out of love. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna clap to that quote myself. I'm just gonna. Is that beautiful? He's saying to you and me, just coasting, I don't like my job, I don't like my situation, I don't like my marriage. Live as deeply and as thoroughly as possible. Create beauty. Act in love. Be a blessing. Me, right here? You, right there. But I, of course it's not you, it's never about you. I will work in and through. How are you doing? Any people of God feeling like you're in exile? You're just waiting. Life is on hold. Faith is on hold. God, if you would just change that. And God's going, you, th you really think? You really think I'm not in that? You really think I'm asleep? You really think... Verse 10, this is what the Lord says. By the way, I skipped a bunch of verses because the other bunch of verses, God just yells at the false prophets. Don't listen to them. Okay, this one. Verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to you to bring you back to this place. God's promise was for restoration after a time of difficulty. Is anybody thankful this morning that God is a God of restoration? You might be a divorced person here this morning, and you might be overwhelmed maybe with guilt and what could have, what should have. I want you to know today that God loves you and wants to restore you fully. I don't know why I said that. That just came out of my mouth. 
Maybe there's a marriage that needs restoration. Maybe there is someone who needs restoration in relationships. I want you to know that our God is a God of restoration. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. Our history heading towards a time when God's going to restore all things. God is a God of restoration. God specializes in bringing life out of dead things. He specializes in resurrections. Is that good news? Well, here's the thing, church. You ready? Repentance was required for the Israelites. There would be no restoration without genuine repentance. But when repentance came, because God is a God of everlasting love, judgment was followed by restoration. Maybe I'm talking to somebody this morning who says, God, I need to be restored. I need to be restored. I need to be healed. I want you to know that there's a cost, and the cost of repentance. But here's the thing. Repentance is this big, scary word. It's really not. You know what repentance is? Simply two things. One, it's acknowledging our sin and our rebellion, and with God's help, committing to live differently. That's what repentance is. So I'm talking to you. Yeah, you're here this morning, and you want restoration in your marriage, that relationship. You can't just go, God, you need to go, God, I acknowledge I've sinned. I've acknowledged that I've forgotten you, abandoned you, and taken control over my life and made a mess of it. God, I confess to you that I've been proud, so proud, so arrogant. God, I acknowledge my rebellion. Then with God's help, it's committing to live differently. Repentance, Greek word metanoia, which is to turn around. It's literally saying, God, with your help, I want to live different. If you're somebody sitting here this morning saying, I need restoration, Peter. I've been in a state of exile for I don't know how long, and I need restoration. I want you to know the good news is that God, his heart bursts for you and wants to restore you. But repentance is required. At the end of this service, I'm going to lead us through actually a short time of repentance. And I want you to take advantage of that time when we get to there. Because if God is already stirring your heart and bringing up things about what you need to acknowledge, hold that and confess it. He already knows. He already knows. Then, yes, we come to the final verse. Uh, Not the final verse, but the verse that I was talking about. Verse 11. Does this sound familiar, by the way? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Sorry, I'm going to read that kind of on a mocking tone. (laughs) Because it's been so abused and used. Declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future from graduation cards to prosperity preachers to anybody and everybody. Is there a verse that's been more abused and misused in entire Christendom? Maybe. I can think of another. Philippians, I can do all things through Christ and strength. That's another good one too. That's another good one. What does this verse mean? I'll tell you what it does not mean. And then I'll tell you what it means. Here's what it does not mean. First and foremost, it does not promise a life of ease, a life of comfort, and a life of material success. Can we just get a wholehearted amen to that? 
What do we know about the lives of some of the prominent exiles to Babylon who got this promise? Daniel does what Jeremiah says. He works for the shalom and he rises to become part of the king's court to which all those health was properly go. That's what I'm talking about. God's favor, promotion. Then we forget two chapters later, he's thrown into the what? The lion's den. They don't preach about that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, along with Daniel, is thrown into the fiery furnace because they will not bow down. Stop praying. Their lives were far from easy. For anybody that says, if you become a Christian, you need to hear this. It'll, it'll guarantee a life of ease, life of comfort, and life of prosperity. Then you've got to come around this fact. The most obedient person who ever lived on the face of the earth died penniless hanging on a cross. And he says, a student is not above his master. If they hated me, they will hate you also. Jeremiah 20, 11 is so far from health, wealth, prosperity. Oh, good Lord. And you know the other thing is? This just hit me this week. When, when, think about this. When Will the promise to bring them back to Jerusalem be fulfilled? Because that's what God's talking about. In what? In 70 years. And in 70 years, check this out. Most of the people who are hearing the promise, they're going to be dead. And Daniel might be too old to actually go back in fulfillment of that promise. Do you know why that's important? Church, I hope this makes sense to you. It resonates with you. These guys... We're not going to personally see the fulfillment of God's promise. But their obedience and faithfulness was a vital part of God's fulfilling his plans. See, here's the thing. I need to sit for this. No, I will stand. <laughs> no, because it, 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 it look, look, I, I'll tell you why it hit me. Because God says your obedience and your faithfulness in your time of exile, it's important to what I'm doing in the world, but you might not personally see the fruit of that obedience. Your obedience and your faithfulness to my plans and my purposes are critical to the world-changing things that I'm doing, but you might not be the personal recipient of that or the way that I frame this question this way. Would you be willing to give your life to save the world if no one ever knew your name? And living by courage is never a promise of adulation or success. What matters is that you live and die for the mission you were born for. In case you're going, is that even biblical? Hebrews chapter 11. <laughs> 
It lists all these heroes of faith. And then this says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Your obedience matters. Your faithfulness matters, but you may never see the fruit of that. It is the ultimate God. It's about your glory and not mine moment. It's the ultimate God. Resize me to my rightful proportions because it's about your kingdom, your priority, your agenda, than mine moment. Would you be willing to give your life to save the world if no one ever knew your name? Lastly, this promise is not about you. It's about God. The promise is not about your plans. The promise is about God's plans. And again, I'm just going to clap to that myself. Because we put the wrong emphasis on that verse forever. It's not, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and give you. It's, I know the plans that I have for you. But see, we struggle with that. Do you know why? Let's be honest. Let's be honest. Because our, our posture, we say the right things, but it's my plans and my purposes that I have planned for me. And if my plans and my purposes align with your plans and your purposes of when I get married, the job that I want, the work situation, how many kids I have, when those plans and my purposes and your plans, they, but if my plans and my purposes don't align with your plans and your purposes, guess which one I'm going to choose? The promise of this verse is that God has a plan and God has a purpose and a no king, no tyrant going to thwart his purposes. Is that good news? The promise of this verse and the whole book of Daniel is this. God's plans and God's purposes to redeem, to restore, to advance his kingdom in the world can never be thwarted no matter who's the president, no matter who's on the throne, no matter what is happening. ISIS may look like they're winning. Evil may look like they're winning. But the promise of Jeremiah 29 is God saying, I'm in control. The kingdom of God is advancing. Nothing will thwart my purposes and my plans from advancing. I will fulfill my will. And that's what our souls need. Because in the larger scheme of that, can you and I know? Let me put it this way. The good news is not that there's absence of bad news. The good news is that our God is in control. <laughs> The good news is that God is still sovereign. The good news is that God still sits on the throne. The good news is that God controls the kings, the presidents, the princes. The good news that you and I and our hearts desperately need is that God's plans and God's purposes will never be thwarted and will advance just as intended. Somebody clap to that. That is good news to me. And that means that even in the midst of our exile, you and I can know God is sovereign.
God cares. God loves me. And he has good plans and purposes that will fulfill his plans and his purposes. And my job is to obediate and faithful to that. Is there something for me though, Peter? Come on, there's something for me. There's got to be something for me. There is. There is actually. You know what it is? Because we go, hopes and dreams and prosperity. Yeah, there is something for you. So check this out. Verse 12. Then you'll call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. The reward of earnestly seeking God is the gift of God himself. There is something for you. You know what it is? The hope that you and I need is the hope of God himself. The future that we need is the future of God himself. The prosperity that we need is the prosperity of being with God himself. The gift of earnestly seeking God is not a job, a promotion, a family, but the gift of God himself. Is that good news? Kevin, you come on up. Saw this poster. Poster of a little kitten. Came out of its basket and was barely holding on with this clause. And the caption, you know, it was one of these Pinterest things. The caption said, faith is in faith until faith is all you're holding on to. Which I thought was sort of cute. And I said, how can we make this more biblical? Because <laughs> you know that's what preachers do. Here's the biblical truth. You ready? Faith is in faith until God is all you're holding on to. Faith is in faith until God is all you're holding on to. And for a lot of us this morning, that means letting go. Letting go of, I know the plans I have and the purpose I have. Let it go. Let it go. You walked in here this morning, the three, the five, the seven-year plan. This is not what I intended. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. God, when am I going to get married? God, when am I going to have children? What about let it go? God, why and when? Let it go. Holding on to him and him alone requires you and I What do you need to let go? What do you need to let go this morning? Come on. What do you need to let go? 
Pray with me. You've heard me say this before. We don't actually believe that God is all that we need until God is all that we have. We don't actually believe that God is all that we need until God is all that we have. Faith. Isn't faith until God is all you're holding on to. Are you willing to let go, some of you, of your plans, your purposes, your expectations? Some of you actually this morning need to let go of the guilt and condemnation that you've been carrying for years, never realizing that God wants to restore you. For you this morning, might be letting go of your pride and your arrogance to acknowledge your need for a Savior. Some of you need to let go, man, of your three, five, seven, your plan. Some of you need to let go of the bitterness and the anger and the unforgiveness that you've been carrying in your heart. Some of you need to let go of your delusion that you are the captain of your own ship and the master of your own fate. And some of us, frankly, easily let go of our fear, our fear, our fear that life isn't what we expected it to be. It's not turning out the way we intend. think of the number of times God says do not fear for I am with you